All right, we are in the book of Psalms. We are going to be looking at Psalm 123 this morning. So if you could open up your Bibles, find Psalm 123, and we'll read through it. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. That sends our reading of God's merciful word. May all who hear it lift up their eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. I have been a Christian close to 30 years now. And throughout those 30 years, I have seen the, the gradual decline of our nation. Things that used to be taboo are now lauded and praised. Things that used to be considered horrific are now championed. And much of the Christian response over the years has been to, to fight the culture war. We try to battle Hollywood through our own form of Christian media. We try to battle the, the liberal indoctrination that goes on in the schools by creating our own schools and, and by homeschooling. We, we've tried to battle the political powers that be by putting forth Christian candidates and pushing for just policies. And while I'm not trying to knock these efforts, they have at best only stemmed the inevitable tide that is our nation's decline. And while there are many good people doing many great things, the one thing that I have rarely seen is a Christian who looks in the mirror and asks the question, where am I at fault? How have I contributed to this mess? For the past four weeks, we've been journeying through these psalms of ascent, through these songs that were sung by pilgrim travelers as they made their, their hike to Jerusalem and to, the, and to the temple of the Lord, to the place where they would participate in the annual feast and the worship of their God. These were 15 psalms that were the popular hymns of their times, songs that everyone knew, songs that... That, that people could sing from memory. And each of these songs, they, they speak of different themes. For instance, in Psalm 120, the first psalm that we looked at, we, we discovered a man who was crying out to the Lord for help because the, the people who surrounded him used their lying lips and deceitful tongues to promote their violence. This man was looking for God's justice. The psalm after that, Psalm 121, we looked at a different man, a man who, who was embarking upon a journey and had to travel through the dangerous hills. And yet this man found his comfort knowing that his help came from 
the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then last Sunday, we spoke of the joy that comes when, when God's people gather together in worship of their Lord. The joy that comes from fellowship, the joy that comes from being in the presence of God Almighty. And yet now today we turn from joy to lament as we look at Psalm 123. This is a psalm about a people who were suffering, about a people who were filled with godly sorrow. And yet even though these people were in anguish, they, they were not without hope. For our psalmist knew that the one to whom he was praying is a merciful, merciful God. Now, unlike last week, where we had a psalm that was written by King David and where we could somewhat pinpoint the, the circumstances behind the writing, with our psalm today, we know neither the author nor when nor where it was written. The only thing we really do know is that it was written during a time of oppression, during a time of persecution, and that's because, because of what our psalmist is, is praying. He, he is looking for relief. He is looking for deliverance. With that being said, one might assume that this would have been written during the exile in Babylon, which is a strong possibility. But it's not the only possibility. For it could have also been written during a time after the exile, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when God's people had returned to the land only to find enemies within their gates, adversaries who like to scoff at those whom they held in contempt. Whatever the case, whether this psalm is exilic or post-exilic, we, we know from the context of our author's words that it was a time of great distress. And that's why this song was written. So let's take, let's take a look at how our psalm is structured and see what kind of outline we can come up with. Now, now what we should notice first about this psalm is it's use of repetition. I mean, four times in the first two verses, our, our author uses the words eyes, right? Um, and, then, and then we see the word mercy being used three times after that. But we also see the repetition of the phrase more than enough, right? That's, that's uh, repeated twice. And then we see as well two appearances of the word contempt, and these, these repetitions, they're, they're there for emphasis. They're there to make a point. And, and thus they give us a, a clue as to the theme that, uh, that our psalmist wants to make. Now, now another thing to notice is a change in the voice that our author uses. He, he switches from the singular in verse 1 with the, with the pronouns I and my to, to the plural in verses 2 through 4, with the pronouns our and us and we. And so even though our psalmist comes before his God by himself, his prayer is not for him alone, but for his people, for those who have remained true to their God. And then finally, the last thing we should notice is just how short this psalm is. Being only four verses, it is one of the briefest psalms in the whole book. And yet what this tells us is that prayer does not have to be lengthy, right? 
Prayer can be straightforward and simple if you so choose. Sometimes it's, it's better to get to the point than to be wordy and repetitious, am I right? In fact, Jesus even warned us about verbose and repetitive prayers. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, this is not to say that all prayer needs to be short. There were plenty of times when Jesus himself spent whole nights in prayer. But probably the most well-known prayer that comes from our Lord and Savior is a prayer that he taught to his disciples immediately after he gave this warning. The Lord's Prayer. That prayer is brief. That prayer is to the point. And yet it conveys some of the most vital vital words that we as God's people should be asking from our Savior. Bottom line, when, when, when you come before your God, you should worry less about the length of your prayer and worry more about your own earnestness and whether or not your prayer focuses on the will of the Lord. Are you coming to God in both spirit and in truth? Now, now with all those details being said, all that being given, let's let, let me give you an outline for our psalm. And this outline, it comes from, from the four distinct roles that our psalmist takes as he progresses in his prayer. In verse 1, he takes the position of the lowly man. He is this earthbound creature lifting his eyes to his heavenly king. Then in verse 2, we see again that our psalmist is in a position of humility as he now takes on the role of a servant. He, he is a, a slave who is at the, the beck and call of his master. Then in verse 3, our, our psalmist shifts gears as he now becomes an advocate for God's people. He lifts up the, the cause of his people's distress and brings it before the throne of the Lord his God. And then finally, in verse 4, our psalmist takes the position of the sufferer, one who is under the scorn and the derision of the wicked. And so our psalmist is the lowly man. He is the servant. He is the advocate. And he is the sufferer. And all these things lead us to our theme, which is this. Only the lowly know how to lift up their eyes to the Lord their God. Only the lowly know how to lift up their eyes to the Lord their God. In other words, if you want to have the ear of Yahweh, then you need to come to him with a humbled heart. Let's, let's go through our psalm and see how this is so. Look at verse 1. Look at the prayer of the lowly man. To you... I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. <clears throat> now, as I mentioned before, our psalmist uses these words, eyes, four times in the, in the first two verses. And, and here we see that the, the eyes of this man, they're lifted up, right? To you, I lift up my eyes. 
And so immediately our psalmist is taking a position of humility, right? He is low, and the one to whom he is looking is high. To you I lift up my eyes. But who is the you to which our psalmist is praying? Well, he is the one who is enthroned in the heavens. In other words, our, 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 our psalmist understands the positioning of both himself and his God. Yahweh is high and lifted up, and he is seated upon his heavenly throne. And yet our psalmist, well, he is in a position that is low. He is positioned upon the earth. He is below the heavens. And he must look upwards in order to focus his gaze upon the one to whom he is praying. Consider the contrast to what we saw two weeks ago in Psalm 121. Look at, look at verse 1 of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now in this earlier psalm, the, the lifting of the man's eyes to the hills meant that our psalmist was looking towards a threat. He was looking at some sort of danger. Above him were his enemies, as well as the temptations of the world. And that, that's why he asked the question, from where does my help come? And yet here in our psalm for today, the, this lifting of our, of our eyes, it goes beyond the hills as our psalmist focuses his gaze upon a higher being, upon the highest of beings, upon this one who is enthroned in the heavens. And so our psalmist, he doesn't look to the dangers of this world. Rather, he is looking to the one who rules over the dangers, to the one who is sovereign over all things. And so from the get-go, our psalmist has an understanding of who God is, that he is high and lifted up. And yet with that understanding must also come the knowledge that our psalmist is not lifted up. Rather, he is lowly, an earthbound man, a man who is limited, a man who is feeble. Our author recognizes that he is in a humble position, and except for his gaze, he is unable to reach this God to whom he prays. In our world today, and in particular in the West, there is this growing narrative that we are autonomous beings. Have you heard the word autonomy before? It means that we are self-sufficient, that we are self-governing. And because of this narrative, we believe that the, the only opinion that matters is the opinion that comes from within. And while we do have earthly authorities that govern over us, their role in society has been reduced from what it's been in the past. Re reduced to the protection of this autonomous state that we have created. They're simply there to make sure that nobody can tell anybody that their opinion is wrong. This is why we see the, the uber rights of the LGBTQ movement today. It's why we see in states such as California, we, we see the protection of thieves and, and the protection of violent criminals. It's why in our, in our own state, there's the protection of those who, who murder their unborn children. It's because we have lifted up the self so high 
that we now look down upon everyone else, including God. Dear friends, pride is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Because what it does, it, it creates a distorted view, not only of yourself, but of, but of God. When you become your own master, then, then you are the one who is high and lifted up. And when you are high and lifted up, then you can only look down. And thus there is no room for the one true God in your life. And this is why our society is becoming increasingly and increasingly godless. And yet our psalmist understands the truth. That it is only through humility that one can truly approach the Father. Look at, look at Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. Or consider James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen, if you are to approach God, if you are to be in God's favor then you must first have a right understanding of both who God is and who you are. That he is high and is seated in the heavens and that you are simply a lowly, lowly man. A lowly, lowly woman. That you are his earthbound creature. You lift your eyes to him and not the other way around. Our psalmist understood this. And that's why in our next verse we see him in the role that we do, in the role of a servant. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Now we live in an age and in a nation where slavery has been done away with. Yes, it is a part of our past, but, but we are now more than 150 years separated from it. And thus, it is no longer a part of our cultural norm. And while this is a good thing, it, it does mean that we need to do a little extra study if we're going to understand some of the nuances of the, the master-slave relationship. You see, there are really two forms of slavery in this world. There, there is a type of slavery that existed in the United States where men were stolen from their homes and then sold to other men where for the rest of their lives they would be forced into hard labor by a cruel master. But there is another kind of slavery that we know little about, and it's called indentured servitude. This is where a person will voluntarily work for their master, either to pay off some sort of debt or, or simply because the life of a slave under such a master was a better life than the life they could have outside of slavery. Now, both forms of slavery existed in the ancient world, but I believe the form to which our psalmist is referring is, is to the latter, to the, to the indentured servant, 
where the master is kind rather than cruel, where the master takes a person into his home in order to give them a better life. And with that perspective in mind, we, we, we can now better understand how our psalmist viewed his God. He was not looking up to some cruel and fickle tyrant. Rather, he was gazing upon this one who had bettered his life, this one who had helped him in his time of need. He is a servant who has his eyes focused upon his king. And yet, where exactly do the eyes of the servant and the eyes of the maidservant look? What does our psalmist tell us? They look to the hand of their master. They look to the hand of their mistress. And that's because the hand was a symbol of power over the whole household. It was the, the master's hand that could either feed or withhold. It was the master's hand that could either lift up or put down. It was a master's hand that, that could either bless or curse. And it was a master's hand that could either show mercy or bring about his judgment. What our psalmist is communicating here is that, that he and his people have been, they have indentured themselves into the service of their God. They now look to, to his hand in order to find mercy. They understand that they are slaves and that, that God is their master and, and they know that it is only through him that their lives can truly be improved. <clears throat> Consider how the Apostle Paul would address himself in many of his letters to the churches. He, he called himself a servant of Christ. Look at, look at Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, Paul could have addressed himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, he could have given himself a, a title with authority. And in many letters, he does this. But Paul also saw himself as a servant as a slave. He was in the service of Jesus, his master, ready and willing to do his master's will. And that's because part of living, part of living for Jesus, part of having faith in Jesus is understanding who he is and who you are. You too, when you approach God, should view yourselves as a slave that Christ is your master, and that you are in his service. And as servants and as maidservants, you need to look to his hand in order to find mercy, for only his hand can provide it. Now again, this demands of us an honest view of both who God is and who you are, right? You must understand the limits that you have as his servants, as well as the limitlessness of your master, that God is the only sovereign, and thus he truly is the only one who can show you mercy. So we've seen the lowly man, and we've seen the servant, but what about the advocate? What about this third role that our psalmist would take? Let's take a look at verse 3. 
Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Here we see our psalmist acting as a spokesman for his people. He, he's fulfilling a, a priestly role as he intercedes for his brothers and sisters in the faith. And this is just one more example of what it means to come to your God with a humbled heart. Our psalmist doesn't simply pray for himself, but he prays for all of God's people, knowing that they are suffering just as he is. Christ's church should have this same attitude when we come to God in prayer. We should be interceding for one another when we approach God's throne. Listen, prayer should never be solely an individualistic matter. Rather, our hearts should be focused upon others. Now, now this is not to say that you should never pray for yourself. But if the only person who, who you bring before your God is yourself, then perhaps you still have too high of an opinion of who you are. Christ teaches us otherwise. Look at, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I, I think a shining example of this when it comes to prayer uh, is from our sister in Christ, Amy. I hope you don't mind me talking about you, Amy. Um, but, it, but if you come to any of our prayer gatherings, you will always find Amy praying for other people by name. She is always lifting up their specific needs, the needs that each person has, and asking God to meet those needs. I mean, I'm her pastor, and yet she is teaching me about what it truly means to be an advocate. This is a lesson that we should all learn. Let me ask you, who are the people in your life who are suffering? Do you know their needs? Do, do, do you understand that, that Jesus Christ, their master and your master, has the power to make their life better? And with that knowledge, are you praying for them? Are, are you lifting them up to your Father in heaven? Our psalmist prayed for his people. He, he was their advocate. He was there for them in their times of trouble. And what was the need that our psalmist prayed for? He prayed for mercy. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Again, we see that repetition of that word. What is mercy? What is our psalmist asking for when he says, have mercy upon us? Mercy is the withholding of a deserved punishment. It's when you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, and rather than your mother slapping your wrist like she should, she instead looks upon you with kindness and allows you to have that cookie anyways. Anyways. 
That's mercy. So what is the kind of mercy that our psalmist is looking for? What does he say? For we have had more than enough of contempt. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our our, our psalmist and his people have, have reached a breaking point. The contempt that they have been shown has been overwhelming. It has become too much for them to bear. And so our our psalmist is looking for relief. But but why was there contempt in the first place? Again, depending on if this psalm was written during the exile or if it was post-exilic, it would tell us who was holding them in contempt. It could have been the Babylonians, those who had displaced the Jews by moving them to Babylon. I mean, think of the prophet Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. How they were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar and made to be slaves in his palace. Or this could have been a post-exilic writing, right? Think of Nehemiah who wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem only to find that enemies were living in the land Opponents who did not want to see the fortunes of Jerusalem restored. But whether this was written during the time of Daniel or during the days of Nehemiah, the one thing that we can be certain of was that our psalmist and the people of God were suffering because of the contempt of those around them. But why ask for mercy? Why not ask for justice? Because our psalmist also understands that this contempt that they had received was a result of their own sins. They were the ones who were under God's judgment. And that's because they had neglected God's word. They were satisfying their own lustful cravings by following the false gods of this world. And God had warned them about this. Look at, look at Leviticus chapter 18, verses 26 through 30. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of the abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge. Never practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You see, Israel as a whole had defiled the land, and so the land vomited them out. Because they had left God's word and practiced these abominable acts, they they were now under the judgment of God. That that was the reason why God had sent them into exile in the first place. It, It was why he had put them under the thumbs of these different pagan kings. It's why they found enemies occupying their land after they had returned. And that was why they were now viewed with contempt by those around them. They were under God's judgment. 
And yet, even though they were under God's judgment, God had used these things to humble his people. Both our psalmists and and the people of God were now repenting. They were turning away from their sins and turning once again towards their God. Their hearts had been humbled, and now they were seeking the Lord their God, their master, and asking him to show them mercy. And even though they they deserve such punishment, they could bear it no longer. Let me ask you, are, are, are we any different? Have not all of us broken God's statutes? Have we not practiced abominations before the Lord? I mean, the land should vomit us out, should it not? For we are a sinful, sinful people and in need of God's mercy. You, you, you see, our, our psalmist understood that, that, that it was his own depravity and it was the depravity of his own people that brought about this judgment. That the things that they were undergoing were justly deserved. And yet it had become too much to bear. And, and, and that is why he now cries out to the Lord his God and pleads for his mercy. And yet because of their change of heart, because of their repentant attitudes, both our psalmist and his people, they now feel the sting of this punishment even more. They have become true sufferers for their masters. Look at, look at our last verse. Look at verse 4. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at, at ease and of the contempt of the proud. Here we see our psalmist using the words scorn and contempt. Contempt could be defined as a a vile hatred. And scorn is simply an open mockery of the one that you detest. And so the the people of God had come to be loathed by the, the people who lived around them whether it be the Babylonians and Babylon or the Sumerians and the Ammonites in the land of Judah. These Jews were hated by the people who had, who had surrounded them. And thus they were openly mocked and held in reproach. And our psalmist, he had a deep awareness of the suffering that they were now experiencing as he himself had also undergone the scorn of his neighbors. Though he was their advocate, he also suffered alongside them. And how are these enemies of God's people described by our psalmist? They are those who are at ease. They are those who are proud. Now, now when he says that they are at ease, he means that they are not troubled by their wicked deeds, that they don't feel the pangs of their guilt. Their consciences have been seared. Instead of fearing God and his judgment, they simply live their lives however they want. And that's because they have proud hearts, right? They have pride welling up inside of them. They they are the opposite of our psalmist. 
They are the opposite of God's humble people. They are not like that submissive servant, nor do they share the attributes of the meek maidservant, those who look to the hand of their master. And that's because they only serve themselves. And yet the reason that they act with scorn towards God's people is because the contempt within their hearts is really towards God himself. In ancient times, often the mistreatment of slaves came not from the hand of their master, but from those outside the house. And that's because most cultures viewed slaves as lowly. Slaves had no rights. They could be abused and mistreated, even by common citizens. Now say the master has some enemies, but these enemies don't quite have the courage to to stand up to that master. And yet, when they see the master's servants out in the public square, well, suddenly, there's their opportunity. Their opportunity to take out their vile hatred towards that master. And they do so by mistreating and abusing his servants. Jesus talked about this very thing when he warned his own disciples about how the world would treat them. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and, a, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Listen, the, the, the world hates those who serve Jesus. And that's because Jesus opposes the proud. It's because Jesus convicts people of their sins. He doesn't allow them to remain in their arrogance or to live their life of ease. And yet because they cannot attack him, because they cannot reach him, they will do the next best, best thing. They will attack his humble servants. And when God's people turn their eyes away from their master, then his righteous judgment will allow his enemies to have their day. I believe this is what we are seeing in our nation today. Because the church has run after the things of this world, God has allowed our nation to turn upon us. If you look at the direction that America is heading, we, we no longer live among a people who fear God. We are surrounded by those who have contempt, contempt for any who want to follow God. And that's because there, there is hardly any prophetic voice that is speaking out within the visible church. Nobody wants to preach God's word any longer. Instead, we have all caved to the idols of our age. And now, because of that, we are under the judgment of the Almighty. The land has chewed us up and spit us out. And the remnant who is left, those who have turned from their sins and have repented, they now feel the biting sting of God's judgment as they suffer for his name's sake. Today, if you, if you stand up for God in any form or any fashion, you're going to be mocked. You're going to be reviled. 
For example, try telling people today that to snuff out the life of an unborn child is an act of murder and see the response you get. Or tell them that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and that nobody can change their gender based on their feelings and, and witness the scorn that follows. Or better yet, tell them that Jesus is God in human flesh. And that only through him can you be saved. And watch their eyes fill with contempt. Dear friends, we are surrounded by those who are proud. We dwell in a land with those who live at ease. And that is why this psalm is so instructive for us today. For it, it demonstrates to us the type of humility that the church needs in order that we might cry out to our God and plead for his mercy. But in order to do that, we must first look in, in the mirror. We must understand that, that we are the lowly man. That we look up to God and not the other way around. We must recognize that, that we are mere, merely servants and made servants. That God is our master and that we are to go about his will. And then we must become advocates for God's people. We must learn how to earnestly, earnestly pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must cry out for God's mercy. And we must do all of this while we suffer for the name of Jesus. We must continue this until God relents and shows us mercy. This this right here was our psalmist strategy for his people to be restored. And it needs to be our strategy as well. And when you think about it, this strategy is not much different than what our Lord did for us some 2,000 years ago. Jesus, though he is God, became a lowly man when he dwelt among us. Jesus, though he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, he became the servant to all as he brought forth his kingdom upon this earth. Jesus, though he is under no obligation to care for any of us, he demonstrates his compassion towards us by becoming our advocate before the Father. And Jesus, though he is sinless, though he has done no wrong, he became a sufferer for God's people when he took upon the contempt and the scorn of his enemies as he went to the cross and died for our sins. And so if you are fed up, then look up. Humble yourself and lift your eyes to the Lord your God, to our God of mercy. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you now that too often we, we look to earthly solutions to fix our spiritual problems. That we place the blame upon our enemies rather than looking in the mirror and trying to figure out how we have contributed. We have yet to humble ourselves as slaves 
and look to the hand of our master. And that's why we come to you now, pleading for your help, pleading for your Holy Spirit to convict us, for your Holy Spirit to teach us, for your Holy Spirit to guide us. Aid us as we look to your Son, our Redeemer, as we put our trust in him, as we cry out, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.